0: welcome to the allies podcast i'm your host carmen farino hello this is carmen farino and welcome to another edition of the allies podcast i am pleased to have with me today lily bernard welcome lily welcome carmen how are you I am doing well. I have. Um, I think you may be, the uh, the first person who has um, ticked every box uh, in the art and activism field. So I want to just kind of set the stage uh. for everyone that you are an activist. You are a visual artist. You are an mm-hmm. actor. You're a writer. Um, mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me that you move across these different areas so fluidly. So I I wanted to start with um, how did you become so interested in creating things?
1: I think it was inherited because I'm one of six siblings and Mm -hmm. all of my siblings are really wonderfully creative in the arts. Our parents also encouraged art creative expression. They put us in piano lessons since we were young and we all had to play. <laughs> we all had to play various instruments in, in orchestra and band. So there was always a guitar playing or a piano or a French horn or clarinet, flute, saxophone, wow. violin, violin, all those things. And then, then, you know, my brother, Dan is a yeah. musician. Um, so I grew up in that environment. And then also, since we were little, My uh, dad, he was an electrical engineer, but he used to bring home these blueprint papers from his Mm -hmm. assignments, and he would open up the large blueprint paper on the kitchen table and spill a box of crayons on top of it. And we would just spend a lot of time since we were very young, like toddlers upward, just drawing on on the back of these blueprint, you know, architectural engineering, engineering, blueprints that my dad would bring home. So, um, and then my parents were both really good at drawing. And my apparently my father's father was also uh, a painter. He was a poet, wow. and also a writer. His father was a Mambi. The Mambisas were the insurgent soldiers that fought in Cuba's War of Independence. Wow. And he, he was born really late, like in 18, or really early, excuse me. My father's father was born in 1868, which is almost two decades before slavery ended in cuba, and he was a black cuban man so his birth certificate says uh, pardo libre which means free black man of a certain complexion and um wow. yeah but that that man was a pastor a writer uh, an author he was a, a war correspondent so his writings are housed like in the in the uh li- national libraries in cuba so i think it's really inherited from my father's father's side the creativity the creative expression
0: that, that was a long, that, that was a long answer. Yeah, to a short question. No, though it's amazing. I mean, I, I, because it, to me, if you, if you have a history that is that rich, then it, it, the things that may seem impossible for other people, clearly, you know, you have people in your family who've done them and, and, yeah. you and, and you grew up, you know, in, in lots of different places, right? Yeah, we sure and, did.
1: Right. That's a good point. Yeah, we grew up all around, all around the world. I mean, I was we I was born in Cuba. My brother Dan, with whom you're friends, he was mm-hmm. born in the United States. But four of us were born in um, Cuba. So we mi- migrated from Cuba to Spain, and we lived in Spain for a couple of years, and then we mm-hmm. lived in Brooklyn, and then New Jersey. And I spent my last two years living in uh, Tokyo because my dad's assignment. As an electrical engineer from mobile Oil, took us to Tokyo. And then, when I was in college, my parents were living in Saudi Arabia, so I spent some of my college breaks living in Saudi Arabia with my parents and for vacation. And then, um, and then my parents moved back to Jersey for a while, and then back to um, Spain, which is, I think, the longest they've lived. So we were, yeah, you know, we traveled to Spain whenever we could afford it to visit my parents.
0: They yeah. usually ended up paying for the plane tickets because I couldn't afford wow. it. But they they want to see the grandkids. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's always the big draw. But so when you when you move from culture to culture, and what is that? What does that do for you in terms of the personal relationships? Is it hard making friends? Was the, was art and creativity a way to to open up doors that way?
1: Well, it's interesting when um when we moved to Tokyo, I was like one month one or two months into my junior year in high school when when we did that I was like really kind of really sad because I had spent uh I think about third grade through uh the beginning of 11th grade with the same group of people who were my friends and so I was Mm -hmm. very distraught about moving but literally the minute I got to Tokyo I was like oh man this is Badass. I mean, we didn't say badass back then, but it was such an exciting city to live in. Like literally the first day that we were there, I was like, this is amazing. I'm so glad we're here. And oh, and, the, wow. and the school there, the American school in Japan, which um, my two younger brothers and I attended, uh, was just a phenomenal school. It had people from all over the world, sons and daughters of diplomats. And mm. and um, so they were from all, all over the world. But the school itself also was very nurturing of, of the arts. I had a great... Um, art teacher, I had great art teachers, great music teachers. And, and so it was just a wonderful experience. But you ask a good question, because when you're um, an American, because I, although I'm a naturalized American, I identify Mm -hmm. as American, Cuban American, of course, but um, you get, like, I think the average American doesn't have the privilege to travel so many places. And so when you're traveling all around the world, you really realize how how small and insignificant you are and that the world is not, <laughs> is not just America. And it's so huge. But I mean, my parents wouldn't make a, I, what, I, what I really admired about my parents, particularly my mother, she really tried to assimilate into the culture of wherever she lived. So for example, mm-hmm. when we lived in Japan, my mom took Japanese lessons. She made us take off our shoes <laughs> whenever we walked in the door. And that's a practice that, that I still practice. I think my brother still practices, mm-hmm. not wearing shoes in the house she cooked um, Japanese food all the time. And when I was in, at ASIJ, I took classes in, in the Japanese language and in Japanese history and writing. So, um, you know, we were just engulfed. But when you're immersed in another in another culture and you're you're soaking in the, you know, the society around you and the history and the art, I think it's really enriching, not just from the perspective of being an artist, but a person because you just realize mm. how vast the world is. and And Americans tend to think that, that like no other place exists, I think.
0: Yeah. Or that you know, the rest of the world is like Epcot, right. You know, it's just this kind of curated place. Um, I mean, and I think that the, the thing that has, has fascinated me about you and, and Dan is that you've been able to, um, to find these ways in your art, um, to connect with people in a, in a, in a very universal way and and i look at your your painting in particular and i am i am blown away by the power of it and i want to read something that's uh that was that's in your um your artist statement because i think it, it kind of you know th- there aren't that many people who can float across so many different areas um but you say something that i find really fascinating and and challenging um, you create narrative artwork that chrono- chronicles sexual, racial, and domestic violence in a collision of cruelty against compassion.
1: Ugh.
0: And the, the, the collision of cruelty against compassion is what I think is so powerful. Um, your, your, your work to me is very accessible and you can feel the pain in it. How did you... How did you break through that type of barrier to to make work that's that's you know that visceral?
1: Wow! I thank you for that question. Well, you know, I I do write poetry. It's not like I'm a published poet or anything, but mm-hmm. I do write poetry, and on an occasion, I've spent years performing the poetry and spoken words. So, of course, there's alliteration in that statement, right? I love <laughs> who doesn't love alliteration, right? The sound of the the same. Um, you know the the beginning sounds of each word rolling mm-hmm. off the tongue, right? But did I say a collision of cruelty against compassion? Yeah, against yeah, compassion. C C C. Oh God. Well, I guess what I'm thinking of when what I was thinking of when I wrote that, and and how it pertains to my evolution as an artist, and I consider myself still very nascent and learning and growing, and that. Um, There's this cognitive dissonance when one Mm -hmm. is a trauma survivor Mm -hmm. that shows this juxtaposition in in various places. One of the places, for example, is um, the perpetrator against the victim. So Mm -hmm. one thing that we learned, for example, when I was in the Cosby, um, watching the Cosby trial, I went there to watch the first trial, the second trial, and the third trial, um, was how trauma Impacts rape survivors, for example, uh, the difference mm-hmm. in the second trial from the first trial that rendered a guilty guilty verdict in comparison to the hung jury in the first, the hung, ver- mm-hmm. you know, the the no verdict right in the first trial yeah. was that the very first witness whom the whom the prosecution brought to the stand was an expert witness. She was a forensic psychiatrist. She is a forensic psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Barbara Ziv. So she right away debunked all these myths about rape um, in order Mm. to edify the jury. And one of them was that a great I forget what it was. It was a huge percentage, something like eighty something or nineties. A huge percentage. I I'm not gonna say the number. You can just Google it. Of uh, mm-hmm. rapes, for example, are actually perpetrated by individuals whom we know intimately and trust. People like our fathers, our grandfathers, mm-hmm. our uncles, our coaches, our teachers, our pastors, our our um priests, um, our neighbors, our coaches, things like that, right? Teachers, on and on. And so what that does is it creates this cognitive dissonance in the mind of the victim, which lends to the victim taking so long to report or never reporting, because most people never report sexual Mm -hmm. assault. And so what happens is that when the perpetrator is someone whom you have trusted and you have loved and adored, it it, it creates a situation where you just like don't understand what's going on. You're confused. Mm-hmm. You want to make it right. It, it, it explains why rape victims keep going back to the perpetrator, you know, to try to mm-hmm. make it right because you to try to bring the relationship back to where it was like to ask, mm-hmm. why did you do this to me? And it's very complicated. So similarly, because I am a victim, a survivor of adult rape, I'm a survivor mm-hmm. of um, domestic violence. Uh, what happens is, you've got this cruelty in the sense that you know you're surviving these attacks upon your body, your mind, your emotions, mm-hmm. your spirit but then you also have like the compassion <laughs> of the perpetrator and that and and so as an as an artist it's because my art is focused around it tends to be focused around the issues of of like you said trauma um, mm-hmm. and domestic sexual and racial violence you're dealing with these these juxtapositions, really, because yeah. no one is no one is all bad. Even the monster Hitler had children who loved him, right? So yeah. they viewed him sure. as loving. So there is this cruelty, you know, co- that's clashing with compassion, and 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 so when I, you know, I I paint a lot of, of ancestral historical paintings, so I'm constantly delving mm-hmm. in my research into the history of slavery, for example, in the Caribbean, and and the compassion. That occurred um, in in that experience as 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 slaves, you know that they they were compassionate to the you know the the, the wet nurses for example were made mm. to to the other, the wet nurses for example as a slave right so she yeah. would have her children wrenched away from her and stripped away from her and sold on the auction block so there's the cruelty of that of of having your children stolen away never to be seen again and yet the same slave master is now putting this bo- this baby at your bosom whom you have to mm. nurse and so now you have to find the compassion you know to nurse this 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 little white child so there's all these juxtapositions and um and that's i, I guess what i'm talking about and then it, somewhere that, in that statement, I, somewhere in that statement, I say that, you know, that there's the resilience of the human spirit or something. I don't want to say something like that. <laughs> you,
0: but I well, know uh, you, you, you talk about that, that describe and, it? You, and you, no, it does. And it, and it's fascinating to me for, for a couple of reasons. One is that the, the idea of that compassion while you're going through pain yeah. is yeah. what I see in your, your art is that oh. you, know, you, you protect the humanity even when people are, you know, are uh, when they abuse people are devaluing those people's humanity. And and you keep coming back to say, you know, those – the the value of people doesn't change. And so I, I yeah. see you – the way you frame these things. And, and it's interesting. I was reading about um, survivors of abuse, especially people that have been uh, gaslighted. And they said, if you find yourself explaining things in great detail, if you find yourself constantly mulling things over, it's because there was a, a point in your life where you weren't sure you were being told things weren't real, right. when, you know, and so you 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 want to make sure you're understood. Yeah. And, and I and I find such a level of clarity in what you do. And and what I what I find interesting is I've when I look at your acting is. That you, you take such joy in, in creating those characters and timing is something that you can't, you can't fake. You kind of have to have it or not. And, and, and it, I think it comes a lot from listening to people. Mm. And I, and I find it really interesting that, um, you know, your activism is about listening and, and empathizing. Your art is, you know, you're placing yourself in these historical circumstances and, and processing that do you find yourself being a, an, an extremely empathetic person and is that a painful process to have
1: yeah so i i look at a, a, a contradiction it's the contradiction is that i'm sitting here spewing out all these words to you and then mm-hmm. i'm often called to to give these talks right on tv mm-hmm. or on the radio so uh, like i become this talking head it's weird and but however mm-hmm. i'm actually known to being a to be a really good listener, <laughs> as much as I mm-hmm. talk and write, I am actually known to be a good listener. And it's often like when I'm just in the street, strangers will just pour out their whole life stories and I'll listen and listen and listen. But empathy is, um, I think empathy is key to being an authentic artist, because if you're not empathetic, then how, how can you possibly uh, evolve? Like, because if you're like narcissistic, for example, you just think that you, that your shit is all right, you know, and you're constantly doing the same stuff. But I think empathy is really key to evolving. But there is one thing, if you don't mind, if I could just go back really quickly yeah. to that question about com- uh, compassion, again, yeah. c- cruelty, if you don't mind, uh, in mm-hmm. reference specifically to my art. I know I went straight, I went straight to the Cosby trial, because I must say that Carmen, I I had difficulty sleeping last night. Like I was tossing and turning. Mm-hmm. Going, oh my God, I've got to talk about this Cosby trauma again, and it's terrifying for me to 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 talk about it because it, it reminds me of horrible memories, you know, of trauma. Mm-hmm. But but I so that I therefore appreciate you asking me about my art relative to the trauma, but there's this one work of art that I made, um, I think back in 2014, where, um, I have this cross, it's, it's a large sculptural piece that works as an installation because it involves video art as well. So, um, in that installation, it's called, um, what is it called?
0: Ain't Funny Crucifix?
1: Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> look at you. <laughs> so I, I, I made this cross out of sugarcane. And I use sugarcane because that's the crop that my ancestors were harvesting in Cuba, right? And I had my son who was 16 or 17 at the time, my firstborn, Rafael. Um, we took this conga drum, right? And we turned the conga drum, which of course is a drum that's used uh, for ceremonial re- religious purposes in, in Afro-Caribbean and African culture. And I painted it and turned it into this watermelon because the watermelon is an object which is used really to stereotype and mock Black people. So there's the cruelty of the, the mocking and the stereotype, you know, the stereotyping of Black people with watermelon, but when you look at it, like if people could have empathy and understanding how really painful it is for black people to be mocked about the watermelon, you have to take it back ancestrally. Imagine that one's slave ancestors, one's slave ancestors as mine, right, were mm-hmm. working hard in the sugarcane fields. And my parents told me that in Cuba, when people work the sugarcane, right, their fields, they're just, they come out, they emerge totally brown, just covered in mm-hmm. mud. and 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 if you, or to Google sugar cane workers, you'll see that people are just co- totally covered in mud. And then the juice of the cane, of the sugarcane, which in Spanish is called guarapo, is sticky. And, and mm. so then it makes the mud like stick all over your body and you're just oh. like this brown thing with white eyes and white teeth. And so imagine that you're chopping cane really hard. And if you look in my paintings, I I often put images of sugar cane and Mm. um, so imagine you're chopping sugar cane, you're covered in mud, right? And and you're under the hot Cuban sun and you're sucking on that sugar cane. I grew up sucking sugar cane. That was part of Mm. my culture. My parents would go, you know, like into Brooklyn and get a big six-foot stalks of sugarcane, and we chop it and, and, and chew it and suck on it. That's what I grew up doing in Princeton, Junction, New Jersey, because that's what we did <laughs> in Cuba. But imagine that you're trying to get you know, calories and sustenance from this, from this sugarcane that's really making your teeth rot. And then here comes a slave master with this big green striped thing, right? And round, a watermelon, mm. in the middle of all that brown mud and the chopping and the machetes and and all that. And you open it up and it's red inside. And as you know, red and green are complementary colors. So mm-hmm. now you've got this beautiful green stripe, big, you know, heavy round thing, you chop it open and it's red and you'd stick mm. your mouth in and it. it's full of juice, but this juice is really life sustaining, right? So in a sense, the watermelon is like this life sustaining fruit, that really sustained the enslaved, and so naturally, mm. when a, an enslaved person would get a watermelon like this, and they're starved and they're thirsty, of course they're going to dig into that with zeal and zest. And so then the slave master would mock that, and that's carried on in generations. So you've got <laughs> the cruelty of, of you know, the slave, the slave, but then the compassion that one has for the watermelon. Like, thank yeah. God for this saving. Fruit, and so in this video piece, I tried to I talked to my child through this, and so I made him hammer 365 nails into this conga drum that we turned into a, a, a watermelon, and that's because mm-hmm. in the Kikongo religion, there are these effigies called Nkosi, and you'll, you'll if you Google that, you'll see that they they have these um, like kind of effigy type of sculptures where they nail a whole bunch of hammers in it and they tie strings Mm -hmm. and messages. And the priest will, the the Yoruba, the Congo, the Congo priest, excuse me, not Yoruba, that's a different religion. The Congo priest will actually take these effigies from home to home. And if there's a sickness in one, he'll perform a certain dance around this, you know, nailed up effigy, this Nkisi thing. And so as I made my son hammering 365 nails into this thing and he was Mm. getting so mad at me mom why 365 nails no one's gonna know i'm like you're gonna know rafa that your ancestors were slaves 365 days of the year so he was so Mm. angrily um hammering these in and then if you look at the video that accompanies the actual sculpture, you'll see that in the video, I had him ha- hammering 365 nails into a real watermelon. And he was very angry at just at the process of having to do this really tedious work. And if you look at the end of the video, then there's a sense. And and also in making that sculpture where he started to take joy and pride in making in just hammering 365 nails. So you mm-hmm. see that he actually felt a compassion for the work that he was doing, a sense mm-hmm. of accomplishment. And so while he was toiling, you know, hammering 365 nails into a congo drum, 365 nails into a live uh, watermelon, you know, for the video as opposed to the congo drum for the, for the sculptural crucifix, he felt this compassion for his ancestors, for himself, like a, lo- a love of self. Okay, well I'm being forced to do this cruel work by these, you know, oppressive slave masters, but I'm going to show some self-love and do the best work that I can and take Hmm. pride in the work. And so that's part of the cruelty against compassion. I know it's a whole lot that I'm saying, but
0: no, I have so many questions. Uh, I mean, this is fascinating. There's, there's a couple of things that immediately spring to mind. One is that um, you're doing something that Jackson Pollock did a lot, which was that the, the, the act of creating the art is the art
1: yeah. as well
0: as what the finished product is. And to have your son and to enlist him in this, you know, it's like you can, uh, you know, a friend of mine says, you know, you can explain falling off a log to your kid, um, but they kind of have to fall off a log, you know, to know what that's like. And you put him through a process where the, the the tedium of doing it actually went from resistance to, again, empathy, yeah. right? put him into a process where he was creating art and understanding. And you know, I'll switch another gear. You remind me a little bit of, um, Tony Morrison in that, um, the, the beginning of beloved, you know, it's uh, one twenty four was a was, was yeah. a spiteful place. And I was reading an analysis of, of beloved and they were going through all the color. Actually it was Hanson and I were reading a uh, friend, oh, a yeah. friend of ours. I know. And, um, I know. And, um, and he's great with this stuff because he he um, he can absorb such a huge amount of information. And he read this uh, and he said, read this and tell me what you think. And it was such a detailed exploration of color and uh, and history in this, you know, maybe three-page long piece. Mm-hmm. And he said, this has got to be like some master student who's trying to read and all these different things to it. And then we turn the page and it's Toni Morrison explaining your work. And, and my point there is that... <sighs> Tony Morrison you, explaining her work. She was explaining her work and she uh, put in all of these layers and detail that you couldn't yeah. hope to understand, but she yeah. did it because of her. Yeah. She needed to do it to strip things away. And it got me to kind of my best description mm. of, of, of art, which is the distillation of life. Ooh. And, and to me, I like that because what, what you're doing is you're, you're, you have a narrative here that is so detailed. And it has so many angles and nuances and storytelling embedded in it. When I hear you talk, and I know this is true when I look at um, your paintings, Mm -hmm. that when you strip it away, each person brings their, their own view to it, but you, you are bringing so much to get to that distillation. Mm -hmm. And I could have looked at that crucifix with the Conga, watermelon and and brought you know a uh, italian american you know uh english background that i have um i would have never brought the depth that you brought and so i i go back to that because you do this with everything there's there's something about how you approach activism and and by the way i don't i don't have to talk at all about your personal circumstances to talk about your, you know, what happened to you as an individual to talk about your activism, because so much of what I see you doing is not shining a light on what happened to you, but shining a light on what happened to everyone else. Mm. And that part, that part shows, you know, it kind of underscores the empathy. So this is a question out of all of that, as, as you, as you framed up one work of art. Why is it? Was it so important for you to become an activist oh. and to and to step out of you know this this purely creative and potentially set yourself up for for lots of conflict, lots of you know backlash?
1: Tell me about why it. do that? Backlash in the form of death threats and rape threats. Yeah, oh I mean, yeah. I, I, I guess it was accidental. My activism in terms of the anti rape activism is 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 accidental, but. I was an activist, I guess, when I was, you know, teaching, coaching kids gymnastics as a teenager because you're helping other people. I was an activist when I started the City of Angels Little League in LA, like in the year 2000. And and then I do a lot of mentoring. So I think part of that, to answer part of your question, is um, really the whole, as an activist, obviously, you have to have empathy um, Mm -hmm. and empathy. you know, you've heard that expression that hurt people grow up to either hurt people again or to heal people, mm-hmm. right? When you're a hurt person, yeah. you either grow up to hurt or heal. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm taking the route of healing instead, right? I'm not growing up to be a, a narcissist. So, um, so part of that is because, you know, you've, as a survivor of trauma, you've experienced such horror. You don't want anyone else to go through that and, and say, there's also a lot of abandonment when you experience the trauma because you find out that people whom you love greatly abandon you and don't uh, care for you or help you or deny your reality. So you want to make sure that other people in similar situations are supported. So there's mm-hmm. um, a, a desire to advocate for the purpose of just helping other people to feel supported.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then, and, there's and the, I, then
1: there's the accidental the accidental activism in that you know i'm a, a survivor of rape by celebrity person and you know if like 47 mm. women came out publicly before i did i was on, i'm only one of like 62 or three women who spoken publicly about having been attacked by bill cosby so so there's a there's that but then also i think it's also a necessary part of my survival just like i create art so that i don't die um, mm. Because if I weren't if I weren't creating art, I'd probably die. But then also, you help people, so you don't die. Because if you just sit there and think about your own misery, it's really terrifying. So you, mm. it's like you're transforming your trauma into triumph for others, and hopefully in the in the process, you're healing yourself too. I don't know.
0: Well, I, no, no, no. Actually, because because it's very hard to, to have a view of yourself, right? You every time you know, it's like I always say, I have a face made for radio. You know, you put me on camera, all I'm doing is looking at the size of my forehead, which is really a five head. Um, but but other people, you know, will. I mean, come on, Carmen, that's out.
1: funny. I, I uh, never heard that expression.
0: Never heard that, huh? Uh, no, and and I as not. I said, I have a face made for radio, know. so you don't want to see that. Um, but, <laughs> But, but it's, it's, you know, I can, I can poke holes in myself every, you know, all day. But, um, what I think I see with you, you know, and I've, I mean, we've known each other since the eighties, um, and and I've seen you evolve. (laughs) There's a phrase I use that says credibility over time builds trust. And so often in your life, that credibility was removed whether it's through oh. disappointment or lack of support or uh, mm-hmm. or abuse. Mm-hmm. And so it, it seems to me that what you do is is the consistency of your support and your advocacy is really building trust in, in your community that you will be there. Physically, oh, wow. you will be there because the worst thing is to is, is to lose someone's trust.
1: Oh, you're going to make me cry now, Carmen. I never, well, I never looked at it that way, but yeah.
0: But that's what it is. It's a drumbeat of every time you turn around. If you drop somebody, you know the the, the pain they keep is is not just in the one time being dropped. It's it's in the fear of of, of ever trusting somebody again.
1: Oh man, so you, you got know? me crying, Carmen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't mean to make you cry. I want I that's wanted to show pain. you when I when I look at your art and you and you look at the expressions of the people's faces. You know, so often you can see the the pain written there, or you can you can see the cruelty, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the slot machine, you know, uh, painting the, you know, people who don't care, who don't have that empathy, who 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 systematically and intentionally remove trust because it destabilizes the you know the person they're abusing.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of invalidation.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 I see the the way that you move across the the different media um, as if you're going to get in, you're going to stay in because you don't want to be be the person that abandons one of your, you know, one of your tribe, one of your compatriots, one of the the people. So is that true? And, you know, because it's just,
1: you're so loaded, man. It's like, you're so loaded. Like, um, and you talked about going cross mediums for example back to that um, ain't funny re- that ain't funny crucifix yeah. piece the, the reason i inserted video in that is because i i thought it was necessary to show how my son made that transition from the anger of having to pound these nails into this you know congo drum watermelon and then mm-hmm. from in the if you look at the video if you go to youtube and google my name and ain't funny you'll see the video you know, Mm -hmm. at the end, he's actually embracing, you know, gently embracing the watermelon. And I did not tell him to do that. He was just, when he started showing this pride and self-love in the process of doing this tedious, laborious task that I was forcing him to do, um, not physically, but imagining himself, how his enslaved ancestors had to do these things. And you see him actually embracing This watermelon. So he goes from being angry to loving this watermelon full of nails, Mm -hmm. and he's got these 365 prickly nails that are like pinching his flesh on the harder end of the nail, of course, you know, while he's trying to hug it and put his head against it. And then you, you know, you when you when you take images like that and you look at a canvas, for example, if if I have a painting where um, a slave is being branded, or um, or a slave is being you know raped. I want to show in the eye of the victim really a compassion and a love for herself or for the other slave that appears in the painting with her um, mm. or um, a baby that might be in a painting you know where a slave is being abused and and so I want to show again you know juxtaposed against this cruelty that the human spirit is of of at least you know loving human spirits is a compassionate spirit. And so, mm. um, so I, I want to show hope that in the midst of, you know, of all this cruel of this cruelty, that there is still hope and resilience. You know, there's the Saba flower. The Saba tree is a big thorny green tree, uh, from Africa that um, mm-hmm. was brought over to the South and Central and Latin America. And it's got these beautiful, succulent pink flowers. And so imagine in Cuba or in South Carolina or wherever slavery was occurring, that Mm. all these horrors were occurring upon human flesh amidst the most Mm. beautiful (laughs) flora, right? With palm trees and, and Saba flowers and fragrances, magnolia flowers, just like, Mm. um, just like um, Billie Holiday, when she said strange strange fruits, you know, you've Mm -hmm. got this, the smell of burning flesh mixing, juxtaposing with this the sweet smell of magnolia mm. you know you see this horrible horrible image of a a man or a woman hanging upside down or right side up and bullets or, mm-hmm. or burning and and then from a magnolia tree with beautiful flowers talk about the juxtaposition there
0: yeah that's i mean reality that's, uh, yeah and i think that's the part that um there was a there was a great series um Last month in the Atlantic where they went back and looked at the um, the WPA writers group during the depression, hired a bunch of writers to go and interview uh, former slaves because they were still alive in the 30s. Right. But they did some weird things, you know, they were mostly white writers, and they tried mm-hmm. to colloquialize the language and they kind of, you know, maybe put their own spin on it. Yeah. So it sounded kind of artificial, you know, kind of overdone. Um, and and you and you couldn't necessarily trust everything that they were saying but one of the things that was fascinating in this piece is that they said um, there, was, there was an account of a kid who was 7 years old when slavery ended and they asked him what his experience in during slavery was and he said he loved growing up where he grew up oh wow you know because he had this window of time where he was a little kid and didn't understand or see all of the pain that everybody else did and they were they were criticizing that and the 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 his descendant actually said no i think you you have to deal with that type of contradiction you have to deal with all of these things and and i see you doing this over and over is is forcing people to to deal with the complexity and I want to. I to. That's
1: a good word. Carmen.
0: Well, it is, and I'm. I'm going to add. I'm going to add something here because I. I, I feel. i i I felt like I understood empathy. Um, when I was younger, but I didn't understand it at all until I had kids. Oh wow! And, you know, you've got six kids. Yeah. Right. Five of them are boys. Yeah. How do, you, how do you prepare your, your children for a world where um, they can experience, you know, th- their lives can be at risk? How do you do that in light of everything that we see going on now with the, the trial of, uh, what's his name, Chauvin, the person who, who killed uh, George Floyd or, or any of, uh, of a thousand other people who were killed? How do, you, how do you do that?
1: You know, you do it with a lot of anxiety and a lot of prayer. Um, Five of my, all all my children, the other father is a brown skinned black man. And so my sons are identifiably black people. And um, let's see. So the first three are brown skinned. The youngest two are lighter skinned, but they are profiled. And um, I remember when Trayvon Martin was killed and if my kids, Oh God, put on hoodies and they went out the door with a hoodie. It was with great anxiety. No, no, no. You know, don't, don't put your hoodie on. And, and, um, so I'm constantly, you know, having those conversations with my children, particularly the boys about how they survived the streets. And, and they, um, one of my sons was like 14, the animator Isaiah, and he's such a gentle, gentle soul. And it was, it a. Was, uh, it was not too long after the Trayvon Martin thing, but he was broad daylight. We live in a nice neighborhood in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. it was broad daylight, and he was riding his bicycle to our local library. And this is what happens when you're a black or brown person on the street riding your bike or walking. All of a sudden, you hear from behind, stop, stop. Your up, like that, right? And so my poor son, that happened to him. And he was terrified and he put his arms up in the air and he and he started telling, I wasn't there. He, re, he came home. He was distraught, 14 years old. He was distraught. Mm-hmm. He was shaking. He was crying. Mom, mom, the cops just pulled me over. They had the sirens on. The, the siren was blaring and the lights and they were speaking in the in the loudspeaker to pull, to, 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 to drop everything and pull over my bike. So he said, what happened? He said, I don't know. They said I looked like someone they were looking for. And, and then um, um, he was, he said he was crying to them, please don't shoot me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And he was just trembling. And then they said, you know, they, and he said they had, he, they had their guns on, their hands on their guns. And they said that he matched the description of someone that they were looking for. And so my son being so empathetic, I'm so sorry that uh, he said that some missing person. So they actually showed him the picture of the missing person. And it was Mm. a girl, and my son is, am- so it was ridiculous. And and so my son is so sweet. He's like, oh, well, I hope you find her. But he came home crying and terrifying. And of course I went straight to the police station, which mm-hmm. is just a couple of blocks from my house. And I complained and told them, you know, we've owned this house here for more than 21 years. Don't you ever treat my children like that again? But all of my children have been, um, except for my daughter, have been profiled. Another one of my mm-hmm. sons um, who's now um, 18, a couple of years ago, he was really handled horribly. I mean, roughly uh, and profiled um, by a co- you know some security at a at a park because it's always like you match the description of yeah. someone and you know and and my kids. I mean, I, I got like a son who goes to Johns Hopkins. They're really educated kids. That doesn't mm-hmm. make them more more worthy of not being profiled all people um, have the right to not be profiled when they're walking down the street but it's yeah i have to have that conversation and then not just the police but also the gangs you know one of my kids was jumped by a gang here so (sighs) it's yeah it's a conversation you have to have you have to teach them like for example when because their survival depends upon their comportment when they're stopped by the police. Okay. Well, hmm. you know, when you're stopped by the police, um, put your hands at the top of the dashboard and don't move. And when the cop asks you to get your license, you say, okay, officer, I'm going to get my my my, my license now. It's in my back pocket. Is that okay? You have to talk them through it, but even talking them through it is not going to necessarily hmm. um, secure your survival. But yeah, these are discussions that I have. Um, but back to the art, my children, you know, they um, they uh, obviously they participate in my art, not just in my video art making. They're also mm-hmm. they appear as subjects, um, as models, really, for the paintings that I make. Mm-hmm. I, I use them as models, and then also in, in live performances that I do. I do a number of live art performances, but their interaction in um, all my work, I think, is educational for them because my work deals with these sociopolitical issues. But um, although I'm educating them well, through their participation, they're really actually my biggest teachers, my children. I learn the most from them.
0: See, but that's what I want to get into because that, that's the part that, that I, find, um, I find so fascinating. There's a, there's a period where you know, your kids want you to walk 12 paces behind them. Uh, you know, they,
1: <laughs> are you there yet carmen
0: <laughs> oh please i went through it I have, I have an 18 and a 21 year old I mean, uh, you know, they actually <laughs> like me now so we kind of came full circle <laughs> oh, but
1: you, you sur- oh you survived the adolescence survived it, it was hard oh,
0: it was hard you yeah, know you, it was just oh, you know, you they, don't used know anything, they, were, right? they know everything please they've they would mo- <laughs> openly mock mock me they said I, they said when i didn't know when i didn't know where i was going i looked like a um a muppet that my arms oh, would swing no. independent of my body as I looked around. And so they would openly mock me and you're like, don't stand near us, you know, oh, cause you look no. like a Muppet when you're, when you don't know where you're going. Um, but, oh. but it's funny, it's funny when you go through that because yes. when you're, when you're an artist and you're, and you're creating, and my wife is an, an artist and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting when, um, you know, when, when you can include them, and you can show them the value that they bring in their experience in, you know, the the way they process things. It, it's again, it's, it's that, it's that trust that you're building with them.
1: Yeah. You know, and
0: I come <laughs> back to that. Just...
1: Yeah. All my kids are in therapy. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: I know. It's mine too. Little, and, I, and I think it's a
1: little one, you know, Ew, yeah. thank, God. thank God for the tele, telemed therapy. You know, they get to see the therapist every week on, on video chat.
0: Thank yeah. God. But yeah. I, but I think that's, I think that's so important because, you know, essentially any type of therapy is just how, how do you process the things that you're going through? And this year, you yeah, know, there's yeah. no, there's nobody that, you know, this is, this is a universal experience in a world that never has universal experiences. <laughs> right. So, so I want to get, I want to talk about the art, um you know, and we're, and we're coming up to the, to our, our time timeline here, but I, and oh, I usually shoot. end, that's okay. No, I mean, we could go on forever. Uh, and I would actually, I think there's, there's an opportunity to bring you back <laughs> at some point too. But, um, but I want to ask one question about the art and then I want to end with the two questions that I usually ask. But the, the question about the art is you, you're making things that are very specific to your experience and your background. And yet when you look at the way that people respond to them, it seems the more specific you get, the more universal they are. Is that true to you? And why do you think that is? If it is,
1: yeah, well, society would say, oh, you know, um, a, a white person is not interested in seeing a movie about Black people, or a white person is not interested in looking at a canvas where the subjects are Black, and that's mm-hmm. not true. Like my, my paintings, even like the, the antebellum appropriation paintings, the ones that are slave narratives, they commonly, uh, like when they're exhibited in a museum or in a gallery, which is infrequent compared to my white counterparts. It's just because we're very underrepresented black and brown artists in the mainstream Mm -hmm. art world. Um, There's like literally crowds of people that just circle around the painting and just linger there for long periods and have all these conversations. Because I think that when you're talking about trauma, like whether it's sexual trauma or domestic violence, whatever, it it crosses sociocultural boundaries. You know, it it crosses race, it crosses gender, Mm. it crosses uh, age. And so I think that when I paint specifically about my own personal experiences and the experiences of my ancestors, I think that the average person, regardless of their own background, can identify because we are all Experiencing the same trauma—that makes any sense. I mean, although of course white people weren't enslaved, they white people living today who's who are open-minded they have to deal with the reality that their ancestors were enslavers, were oppressors. Yeah. So we, so this, you know, like racism and 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 sexism, um, it all. It infects every corner of our society. You can't like no one's immune to it. I so, I just so I don't know. I learned like for example, when I was in the hospital dealing with the the um, Cosby trauma you know, with mm-hmm. uh, PTSD, I was you know, very critically ill with PTSD, and um, they put us in a ward where we all were similarly all similarly survived, you know, rape and and so there were there was like you know white blonde haired. People. There was a me- male, woman, black, brown, Asian, and we all like went through the same shit, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so we all. There was one girl who was like blonde hair, blue eyes, and and and, and her father was a multi-billionaire, and yeah. she was a victim of rape and domestic violence. And mm-hmm. so I talk about this siblinghood or sisterhood of, of rape survivors. Is true. It does really cross race and sex and gender and. An age because you're all like experiencing the same thing. Does that make any sense?
0: No, it does. It's, it's it's exactly what I was what I was getting at is somehow again it comes back to the advocacy and the art. I think are are so inextricably tied in what you do because the more specific and 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 more iconic the the frames of your art are, the more you're actually tapping into experiences that other people can see themselves in. Yeah, and, and I see that, you know, when I, when I look at the one that looks like Liberty where she's got the machete in her hand and, yeah, uh, and I, yeah. And I, and I see that it, it, it feels to me like, you know, obviously a French person can look at that and say, okay, well, there's this that I can bring to it. And, you know, somebody who is, is, you know, Afro Caribbean, who, who was, you know, whose ancestors were enslaved was going to see something different. But but each time you're showing the resiliency, you're showing somebody who's standing up, pushing, you know, for their humanity, and that's the part that I find so life affirming. You know, it's like John Lennon said when he met Yoko Ono, he had to st- climb up on a step ladder and there was something tiny written on the ceiling, and when he got up there, it, I think it said yes, and he's like, you know, thank God there was something positive because if it said something snarky, I'd have just said this is bullshit and walked away, mm-hmm. and and I think there's there's humanity and empathy in so much of 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 the art that is created by people in pain because they feel that and so that's that's kind of how i want to end when i usually end with two questions so what and now what okay. and i want to throw them back at you so what that you've got this woman who has put herself in a position of advocacy and art and, you know, what does it mean? What, what do you see as maybe your, your legacy or your impact or your, or your value for all the pain that you're actually bringing yourself? Um, What does it, what does it do for you to, to, to put yourself in these, in these situations?
1: Well, like I said, I, I have death threats and, and um, rape threats, not just from my speaking out, my my activism, but also the art that I make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned leading uh, the 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 painting that I appropriated. The Delacroix, Delacroix was a French European mm-hmm. painting. I made this painting about a fictitious re- rebellion lady leader named Liberty, and I took that painting and I flipped it and I told the real life story. Of an enslaved Yoruba woman in Cuba named Carlota, who actually was a key figure in the slave insurrections in Cuba. Mm-hmm. But I, I have a lot of people who are angry at me for that painting. Like how <laughs> dare how dare you, you know, take Delacroix's classical painting and put some Negroes in there? You know, I mean, I've been, I've, I've been attacked for that painting. I've been, a, you know, attacked for a number of, of works that that I that I made. But I think you know, when you do the advocacy, uh, you you put yourself at risk. You know. Like, I was attacked by, you know, I, I went to the, to the trial of the Cosby trial to support my sisters on the witness stand, and I ended up being attacked by the Cosby shills and fans there, mm-hmm. and it was a dangerous situation. But you put yourself at risk physically and then also emotionally because you have an anxiety from people attacking you, whether it's strangers on the street or orchestrated shills or people <laughs> in your own home who, you know, are supposed to love you. But, um, mm-hmm. I, but it's, um, I don't know, but, you but put that's, yourself, but that's a what self-love. you do though. I don't know. Yeah, but I'm trying to love myself now. I'm trying to protect myself, you know, protect my peace. My one son prays for me, Uriel, shout out to Uriel. He always says, mommy, I, I pray that you protect your peace so mm. to learn to love the self because so, so many of us advocates uh, out there who are survivors ourselves we give so much in a, such a self-sacrificing way that you know we come home from these talks and as we're driving home we're like having panic attacks on the freeway and night terrors at night and mm. and a lot of you know PTSD issues that we have to contend with and just to try to love the self it's it's not easy doing this kind of work when you're a survivor
0: no and and i you know, just and thank to you for that. Yourself. No, because, because I think that, I think that the, the idea that you are a person who protects other people, you know, whether it's your, your family, your, you know, where you, you step in so that somebody else doesn't catch hell for something, you know, or, or your, your fellow advocates or the way that you're representing people who didn't have a voice, you know, 150 years ago. <laughs> That's the, that's the gist of what I see. That's why I started with how empathetic I see your art and your activism is. And so I'll, I'll end with um, the now what we're coming out of this universal experience we're seeing black lives matter be um you know kind of uh pushed to the fore. we're seeing that the me too movement uh is 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 not waning as a lot of you know people were expecting but that it's actually having an impact that that the justice is being served in rare cases where it it it, it hadn't been whether it's you know weinstein or cosby or any of those people Mm -hmm. what's next what do you see down the road um and can you be predictive with, with you know, as, as I think, you know, Obama had said and quoted somebody else that the arc of the moral universe is, is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And MLK, yeah, I guess, had said it as well.
1: MLK, yeah. but,
0: but what is, is that where we're going? Are we seeing traction or is it kind of a one step forward, two steps back type of thing?
1: Yeah, definitely. One step forward, two step back. I asked um, my friend, Caroline Heldman, who's a great advocate and friend of mine, just Google her. She's also a survivor. She led the mm-hmm. uh, the End Rape SOL campaign in which we abolished the statute of limitations on rape prosecution here in California. Mm-hmm. And together, she and I and Mira Servina, Jessica Barth, also worked on these Me Too laws that really changed the employment discrimination and rape, sex discrimination workplace. It's too much wow. to get into, but we um, advocated and got the governor to, to sign these bills. So there's definitely this Political power that comes with activism when you're, particularly when you're a survivor, and so your voice is an authentic voice. And if you have mm-hmm. the misfortune of, you know, of being assaulted by someone who is famous, well, then you use your celebrity, you know, to bring to to bring a platform to these issues. So I, I just look at, I do believe that, um, you know, so many. Sexual assault survivors and, and domestic violence survivors and survivors of police brutality and their loved ones, their advocates, their allies have spoken up so bravely and courageously because, as you know, speaking up comes with um, – is, is a great risk of being attacked and mm-hmm. retaliated against. But I do do think that there is tremendous political power in, in – in, um, survivorship in the siblinghood and the coming together so i do i do foresee that laws will be will continue to shift uh, to favor the victim to favor the disenfranchised and but it is um a, a long way to go right now we're uh working on ratifying the equal rights amendment so i mean you mm-hmm. know women aren't even included in the constitution so that's one thing that we're working towards right now but i just think it's so so much has changed and yet so little has changed and all mm-hmm. we can do is to try to make our communities a safer and better place that, than when we um, entered them. You know, when we leave, you know, can we make our communities a safer place? That's what we're trying to do. Just, it's a lot of work. It's just, it's disillusioning <clears throat> at times. And, that it's just well, like, you know,
0: you just I, have to watch. Well, that's that's that was the piece that I wanted to that I wanted to tap into because, you know, again, you're you're not always the best judge of the impact that you have. Um, but, you know, I, 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 the thing that I find is helpful, and I'm, I'm not the best at doing this myself, but, you know, if, if you were to look at what you've done as if um, those were things that were done by a friend of yours, mm. I think you'd probably get a sense of the scope and scale of your accomplishments and the influence yeah. and impact. You know, and, and I say that because… You know, I've watched you from you know a certain certain level of distance, and have been impressed. Haven't had the chance to tell you that, but the, you know, when you see somebody pop up on your TV, screaming or walking by, and you're like, "Oh, that's Lily," <laughs> and not just once, Lily. This has happened. I've seen you pop up, uh, you know, three, four, five times in random ways because of your art, um, because of your acting, um, because of your advocacy, and and I have to say. Um, it's, it's a really powerful thing to see those elements all intertwined. So I, I, w- I want to thank you for that because maybe you don't see it as much, but I do. Uh, and I think other people do too.
1: Well, I'm just one small pawn in this great army of resilient survivors. And there's no way that I could ever be in the position I am were it not for my sisterhood and siblinghood of survivors, for people who have supported me and advocated on my behalf and who have just really lifted me up. And so there are many other people who are doing greater. And more wonderful things but you'll, if you look at a lot of survivors they're doing great things like you know Mira Sorvino she's she's uh, working on sex trafficking she's a, an advocate she, with the um, United Nations uh, I mentioned Caroline Heldman Pamela Guest is another survivor mm-hmm. that she started the sexual assault um, committee in the Screen Actors Guild of which I'm a member Jessica Barth I mean there's so many there's so many survivors out, out there from not just celebrities but um, non-celebrities who are really trend- Transforming their trauma into triumph for others by just really using their voice for political power to change laws and to make places safer. And it's also interpersonal, right? So you affect mm-hmm. people interpersonally. I have people from all over the world who contact me and say, "Thank you so much for speaking out because you spoke out, I found the courage to hold accountable the, the priest, you know, who molested me when I was seven years old." So there's the mm-hmm. interpersonal. And um, but yeah. So no, it's not. I mean, I'm just one small voice in a sea of really courageous survivors who are making, who are shifting culture towards uh, gender equity, towards uh, victim rights, and.
0: Well, yes, yeah. that that is a wonderfully humble um, and, and and much appreciated kind of way of saying it. Um, and and th- that universe of diverse stories is kind of why i started this podcast Mm -hmm. is to hear from um you know all the different types of people who can be advocates or allies um so i i want to thank you lily um this was fascinating i could go on for another hour um but i try to keep these at an hour even um so thank you for sharing um a, a piece of you know what motivates you and the way you see the world and i think um other people are going to find this fascinating as well so thank you
1: thank you carmen
0: Well, that's all the time we have for uh, the Allies Podcast. Uh, As always, if you have a question um, for Lily, please let us know. You can email us and we will uh, see if Lily can respond. If you have ways of making this podcast better or people you want to recommend that we should speak with, um, please let us know. And until uh, next time, thanks for tuning in.